Chris. <laughs> I say that right as Chris is coughing and sneezing, apparently, at the exact same time. <laughs> I was getting ready to mute. You said that. And I'm like, damn it. <laughs> right. Hey, Kara. <laughs> How are you doing any better? I'm the same. You're the same. same. Yeah, yeah. I mean, recovering from something that's not COVID and it's not the flu, but feels like both. <laughs> Who the hell knows? Who the hell knows? I mean, yeah, we talked about it yesterday that there's like a 30% false negative rate. So you may have it. Well, yeah, but three out of the five members of my household have been tested and all false negative. What are the rates of that? What is, what's the probability of that? My guess is the more tests we do, the higher that false negative rate actually is going to be. Anyway, so what did you do today in your quarantine? Slept till 11. I showered because I itched so bad from all the poison ivy. So I took a scalding hot shower and I brined a pork butt and then I took a nap. It's like a pretty good day, actually. I thought about doing some more productive stuff. And then you texted me and reminded me that I indeed should get up and do some productive <laughs> stuff. Keeping you on track, even in quarantine. Fortunately, with two chihuahuas laying on my lap, the impulse was to not look at my text, but I did. Yeah, thank you, Chihuahuas, for at least giving some. No, no, they didn't help. They're like two Chihuahuas laying on me just made me just be like, no. you know what? I should not move. Kara like, eh. can wait. Yeah, so my day consisted of finishing out a manuscript that I'm so tired of working on that I managed to squeeze in a reference to Don Quixote, not once, but twice. I've been getting a lot of work in on a book that's long overdue and making a lot of terrible bad references it just whatever the hell pops into your head right at that yep. moment yep and, and then you know the writing is so bad i'm just like what in the hell am i gonna do with this uh -huh. like i am a terrible writer <laughs> i mean i got away with a star wars reference in a, in a paper that got accepted and i've just now taken that as license to just throw in whatever random references i want now I was talking about Andrew Yang in the introduction to a paper about religion. And then it veered into drug use. <laughs> no. I, and then I was like, well, maybe if I do some research, I can find a connection. The last sort of paper on it was in 1935. And it basically <laughs> said, no. It's almost a century old. <laughs> there's no connection between the thing you're saying and the thing you're trying to say. And I was like, maybe if I just try really hard to make this argument work, and then ultimately I just cut it out and then looked at the next few sentences and went, wow, the rest of this sucks too. <laughs> I'm going to go watch Unorthodox. Unor oh, yeah, what is that? I just saw a headline about it, but I didn't actually read the article. It's about Hasidic Jewish uh, family troubles. Um, that particular show is about the Satmar from Williamsburg, Brooklyn, mm -hmm. and a girl who basically, her mother didn't fit in, so it was ostracized, and they took her away mm -hmm. uh, through court. Uh, so, so basically the Satmar and the, the Hasidim in Brooklyn and Israel are trying to repopulate the six million Jews that died in the Holocaust. So every child is precious, and they're all about having more kids, and um, it, they're really based in the Kabbalah, uh, an interpretation of the Kabbalah, which is mystical, Mm -hmm. Judaism, very, very holy, very, very religious, very, very ritualized. Do they and have lots of symbols? Lots of symbols. <gasps> I have now found the connection into today's guest. Oh, yeah? 
Yeah. And it's very, very resonant with how some of the cultural, psychological anthropologists and cultural anthropologists who I work with a lot in the Society for Psychological Anthropology are trying to reconceptualize the embodiment theory. Mm. Embodiment theory really comes out of the work of Thomas Shortish at uh, UCSD. He used to be at Wayne State before that, but talking about how culture gets in the body, and it comes out of Mary Ponty and Bordeaux. And Carol Worthman was one of the first people several years ago to say, you know, they really, they keep talking about this embodiment thing, but they really haven't done a good job of articulating how culture gets in the body. And she makes the argument in a great paper, a great chapter that I use a lot for local biology and developmental processes. Mm. So that culture and biology are interacting and that it's bi-directional. And mm-hmm. um, essentially reading Jeff's piece here, uh, yeah. talking about niche construction and an extended phenotype, they're talking about the exact same thing. Yeah, that's what it seems like. When I was browsing through this paper, my first thought was, yeah, this is going to be right up Chris's alley. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love this stuff. And, you know, I thought about talk, talking a lot about niche construction because <laughs> it, feels, it feels resonant with a lot that I've written. And the problem is, is we have a lot of people in maybe a different subdiscipline mm. studying primates instead of studying humans yeah. and bioanth and the AAPA instead of in the Society for Psychological Anthropology, mm-hmm. looking at the exact same things, but using different theoretical approaches. And my guess is probably not cross-talking as much as they should. Not yet, yeah. but maybe we can help that. I mean, Carol Worthman was one of the exemplars for that because she was at the same time, both president of our Human Biology Association mm-hmm and the SPA. So, and this is Augustine and Katie McKinnon have mm-hmm. been wor- doing writing on niche construction among primates and ethnoprimatology now for a decade. So um, I know they're talking, it just needs to trickle down. And it looks like our good friend, Mark Kissel is on this paper as well. Mark Kissel comes up, what, and we have yet to actually interview him. Well, you know, we have a lot of friends who are like that. I was just thinking one of the most important people to our podcast actually happening is Jason DeCaro, whose office is right next to mine. We interact all the time. We work together all the time. He helps post podcasts every week. He does fascinating work at the mm-hmm. intersection of bio, biology, culture, and linguistics with Sonia Pritzker in my department. And well, I still need to interview him. We have a lot of people like that. There's a we lot do. of great people out there and and we will get to you all we promise we know we haven't forgotten about you although we don't want to add any more burdens to people's plates right now so yeah let's bring jeff on so he is a postdoc at the university of notre dame his office was also just down the hall for mine until we all went into quarantine um and his work looks at uh the social relationships among long-tailed macaques as well as the interactions long-tailed macaques have with humans but the particular paper that we are talking about today is called Semiotic Mechanisms Underlying Niche Construction. And don't worry, I'm going to make him define all of those terms. Now, do you prefer uh, niche or niche? I like niche. Okay, good. I'm a niche person also. <laughs> niche. We, we don't have to grate on each other's nerves by pronouncing it two different ways throughout a whole podcast. Let's see how he pronounces it. Uh-oh. That could, that could throw a wrench into this whole thing. Jeff, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to chat with us. Yeah, well, thank you both for for having me. We're we're super excited. So you are our second quarantine interview. (laughs) 
And so we started our first one. And I think we should start the same way of how have you been managing everything? How is it going for you? Because we're on what, like week three, week four now of, you know, sheltering in place, basically. The weeks kind of just keep slipping by. And, you know, I have a son in second grade and then my daughter is 21 months old. And so Mm -hmm. trying to run his e-learning while trying to convince the toddler that he's not available for play right now, even though he's just sitting in the middle of the room, you know, on, on the desktop computer. So, you know, of course she thinks it's, it's playtime. So, you know, we're constantly trying to wrangle both of them in some way. How are you doing with that? Because I, I know a lot of parents right now in similar situations and they are at their wits end. You know, everybody is stressed in one way or another having to suddenly do everything from home. And, you know, it it, it makes the days full for sure. You don't, sometimes mm-hmm. you, it feels like you don't stop until after the kids go to bed at, you know, 8 or 8.30. And so it's, it's, it's a constant stream of activity where you have to be completely engaged. And so, yeah, it does mm-hmm. kind of, does kind of wear down. What are you doing right now to have them occupied while you chat with us? <laughs> <laughs> well, my son just turned eight yesterday. And yes, so I, I think saw. he's, Happy yeah, so he's occupied with Minecraft. And mm. <laughs> I, I think my daughter is, is painting with my wife right now. So. Okay. Well, that's yeah. good. And uh, I mean, I know teaching is super important to you and you take it very seriously and you think quite deeply about your, your pedagogy. How has the transition been to online courses for you? I am lucky in the sense that I am only teaching one class this semester. And so I have been able to kind of focus all of mm. my energy on, on modifying this specific class for the online format. But it, it's challenging because it was the first time I've been able to teach primate behavior, which is my specialty mm-hmm. in class. And I've done a lot of work trying to make it a very interactive class, right? So we're not using textbooks. We're trying mm-hmm. to discuss these issues a lot more. And I grouped them all by clades. And so I would have, you know, at the very beginning of the semester, I assigned them each their own primate species. And they write all of their essays throughout the semester about that one species. Mm-hmm. And then they group together in their clades as either apes or colubines, circopithecines, platyrines and it seems like from my perspective it's been really great and the students have been really engaging but we do kind of miss that group dynamic of being in the classroom you know we've used the breakout room functionality Mm -hmm. in zoom and it does you know engender more discussion than you get with just everybody on a zoom Mm -hmm. but you know it's not the same and so i think that we're all kind of missing that dynamic so jeff it's good to meet you i'm chris we haven't had the pleasure sorry i should yeah nice to meet you too chris it's okay. How about you start us off? Uh, you start me off and, and our audience in the same in the same way by giving us some background on you and how you came to where you are, what you study, all that jazz. Yeah, absolutely. So I started as, as an undergrad undeclared. And so I took a bunch of courses to try and figure out what exactly I wanted to major in. And where are you from? I'm from Southern Illinois originally. Okay. And so, and so I did my undergrad about two hours north of where I was at the, the University of Illinois. Hmm. And uh, usually folks from Chicago think that anything south of I-80 is Southern Illinois, but there's, <laughs> you know, so U of I is already considered Southern Illinois to some people, but I'm from either even further south than that. So there I took some specifically archaeology, and I was interested in doing that until I took a bioanth class for the first time. And it was the first time I'd ever been introduced to hominin evolution, and it really just blew my mind. And so I just kept following up with bioanth classes, and I'd 
declared anthropology as my major. But then there was an opportunity to do a field school in Costa Rica mm. with Professor Paul Garber. He was running the field school. And I just got hooked on primatology after that. And it was really interesting, actually. One of my TAs was Professor Michaela Howells who doing my dissertation work, she was running a field school in Bali with, mm-hmm. with the, uh, Professor James Loudon. And, you know, we had a nice kind of full circle moment where we met back up again, you know, in the context of a field school, but after, you know, a lot of time had passed. That's absolutely amazing. Michaela Howells is the executive committee chair for public relations under which Kara and I run the Sausage of Science. And we've all known each other for many, many years. James Loudon and Michaela are a couple. They're both biological anthropologists. He's primarily a primatologist. She was initially trained in primatology, switched over to human biology. Augustine Fuentes, who Kara works with at Notre Dame, is also an ethnoprimatologist who started the Balinese Field School. James Loudon was Augustine's TA. Michaela went to that field school when she was an undergraduate and fell in love with James and made him marry her. And (laughs) they wooed each other. Okay. I mean, it's a job. I'm I'm being funny. So, and then Augustine passed that field school on and Michaela and James now run that. I don't, I doubt they're doing it this summer. I don't think they did Mm -hmm. it last summer, but they, the Balinese ethnoprimatology field school is an ongoing field school. And Augustine who we talked to several episodes ago told us about when we talked about coming mm-hmm. back in the field and the, the, the ennui of, of leaving all of that behind. So I'm just trying to connect the dots for our listeners. Cause yet again, for the second interview in a row, Kara, we're not talking about Michigan. Damn it. I think you might actually have to draw a social network or flow chart to actually give a visualization for people listening to the show to refer to. I know, but <laughs> that got you know, very is, complicated. <laughs> this is, this is one of the reasons that we do this piece. Cause I, I find it really interesting mm-hmm. who trained who, who knows who, how everybody got inspired and what powerful roles individuals can play in all of this for one student who then who mm-hmm. then travels on. So I, I apologize, Jeff. <laughs> Please continue. And so what brought you to Notre Dame to do your PhD? I did a master's at San Diego State under mm-hmm. Dr. Aaron Riley's supervision. Ah. And it, it was at the time a, an emerging framework of ethnoprimatology that I think since has, has kind of taken off. And it's just a way of also thinking about human modification and environments as being relevant to understanding primate behavior and primate evolution. And so this master study that I did was with Balinese trans migrants, because I was always interested in the idea of macaques living at Balinese temples. And as an undergrad, particularly a lot of the disease transmission work that was coming out was really interesting. And so for my master's, I focused on doing interviews with Balinese folks living outside of Bali to see what their thoughts were about the local macaques in on a different island, basically. Mm-hmm. And they still had reverence for the macaques or if it was a completely different dynamic, which I found that it, it was a much different dynamic. So you did your <laughs> master's with Aaron Riley in San Diego and then the Notre Dame connection. Yeah, well, and then I, I actually took a year or two off between master's and PhD, and I was just teaching online anthropology, actually living in Indonesia at the time. Mm. And as I was getting ready to apply for the PhD program, Notre Dame just announced that they were having their initial, their their first ever uh, 
PhD class. And so uh, it was, it almost seemed like fate because I'd been, you know, following Augustine Fuentes' work for, for so long because he's a leading ethnoprimatologist. And so I applied to work with him as well as all the other faculty at Notre Dame because they were really gearing up to create an interdisciplinary program. And I think it allowed me to do a kind of dissertation that I wouldn't have been able to do in a lot of places and draw from a lot of different areas of expertise, you know, including semiotics. A lot of people would be quite wary of being a first class in a PhD program and not having, you know, quote unquote, upperclassmen to, to kind of get the lay of the land. And you, you took a plunge and you've been quite successful. And out of that came the paper that we're going to talk about today, which is the semiotic mechanisms underlying niche construction. And so this is so outside of what I do and so much more in Chris's wheelhouse, like half of that, that, that title made no sense to me at first. I had to break it down. So I would really love for you to like break down what this paper is and, and what it means. And then we can dig in a little bit more about maybe some of the specifics. Yeah, thank you. Well, this was a really interesting paper to put together. And I should note that, you know, I was on it with a, with a lot of colleagues. And so it was me and Anne-Marie Thornburg. Both of us were graduate students at the time along with Mark Kissel, Christopher Ball, and Augustine Fuentes. And this paper kind of emerged out of a lot of thinking that the five of us had been doing throughout our coursework and just through conversations about semiotics and the various applications of it. And there was a call for papers to do a special issue on semiotics and niche construction in the journal Biosemiotics. And we just kind of got together and submitted an abstract to put all of our, our thinking together. And so it, it allowed us to talk about why we think semiotics is interesting in terms of explaining the mechanisms for niche construct. Could you explain very briefly what semiotics is and what a niche is? Or a niche. Yeah, so- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Conversation earlier. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I'm one of the ones who who says niche, so um, we were it's wondering. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> you off the show. Don't worry. <laughs> well, that's the benefit of writing. You don't have to say it out loud, so nobody knows. Yeah. But so an, a niche is just all of the surrounding biotic and abiotic. So all of the biological and non-biological features of an environment. Typically, it stands to refer to those features of the environment that have an impact on an organism's evolution. Hmm. So those features of an environment that in some way contribute to natural selection, which ends up causing changes in gene frequencies over time. So that's kind of the, the standard or more traditional approach to defining niche. There's been more recent work that has included other kinds of inheritance mechanisms or the relevance of thinking about other kinds of inheritance mechanisms within a niche concept. And so we're looking at things like in Eva Jablanca and Marion Lamb's terms, behavioral inheritance and symbolic inheritance. So in other words, it's ways of thinking about how language and social learning may contribute to particular kinds of patterns of behavior being passed down and maintained in populations over long periods of time. We include all of those ecological as well as social components of a surrounding environment. 
And just to knit it all together, Jablonka and Lamb, what I have read of theirs has been primarily about epigenetics and trying to parse out the mechanisms. Is that the same the same literature that we're talking about? Yeah, and they, they really put all of that together in their book, Evolution in Four Dimensions. And I think that that's a, a really good starting point if someone's interested in learning more about how these non-genetic mechanisms of inheritance tie together. It, it's a really good text, I think, I think, to start with. And it talks about epigenetics as well as developmental bias and symbolic inheritance. Nice. Thank you for that recommendation. I will check that out. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so semiotics then is the, the other term that we need to define. So most generally, a way of understanding the transmission of information through sign exchange. So where semiotics differs from other perspectives is that there are multiple levels of signs that each convey information in different kinds of ways. And so it's almost a double-edged sword because on the one hand, it gets complicated and it's esoteric at best. But (laughs) on the other hand, on the positive side, it does allow folks to think about the way that information gets transmitted and the way that meaning gets made in more specific ways. And so one good example, I think, to drive home the importance of semiotics is using the symbol. So within a semiotic framework, the symbol is a kind of a sign, but it doesn't stand alone, right? It's not separate from other forms of communication. And it actually has other sign forms that help constitute what we recognize as a symbol. So another sign form would be an index. And an index is defined by the meaning of the sign has some sort of causal relationship to the sign itself. The classic example is the weather vane, where the direction of the weather vane is causally related to the direction of the wind, right? Whereas with a symbol, the meaning of a symbol is arbitrary. There's no direct connection between a symbol and its meaning, but it's conventionalized over time. And so the meaning gets maintained uh, through conventionalization. And so thinking semiotically, we can look at different ways that indexes come into play to convey meaning among other animals, for instance, like with, with dogs or with monkeys, but then also in, in hominin evolution. So let me ask really quickly, if, if there's a journal of semiotics and you guys were, or biosemiotic, yeah. what's the difference then between biosemiotics and evolutionary signaling theory? You know, I don't think that there would be too much of a distinction. You know, I mean, I think that they're very closely connected. It's just, if anything, with biosemiotics, it would draw more specifically on that semiotic framework as outlined by the philosopher Charles Sanders Peirce, who really kind of created this this framework that gets taken up and, and utilized most famously in terms of symbol, index, and icon. And so that's probably the biggest difference is they would draw specifically from that taxonomy of signs, as it were. This is one of the things that Karen and I were talking about before you came on. Your work is so resonant for me because I use niche construction and I use semiotics in my own work, but I use niche construction from the embodiment theoretical modality. The description is almost exactly the same thing when it's done by a biologist like Carol Worthman. And then the semiotics is almost the exact same thing as Veblen's conspicuous consumption, and then at a biological level, evolutionary signaling theory. So I was just trying to understand, and maybe for some listeners who might also be confused by words that they haven't encountered yet, theoretically, like how these all fit together. So that's why I asked. I think that's a great point. And it's another thing that makes it, for me, worth 
kind of digging into the literature to understand it because it, it does have kind of a sliding scale and it can be applied to a lot of areas of study, but it shares the same basic connection and understanding of how these signs operate. And I actually was wondering, because I know that you work with tattoos and I was thinking before I came on that, that it seems like semiotics would be a really interesting way to, to think about expression and, and meaning in, in that particular modality. Well, man, we should talk. I think it really comes across and, and I 100% see why your students like you so much because you just took something that I don't work in niche construction, but I honestly should given some of the things that I do. And semiotics, all of this was very foreign concept to me and you made it very easily digestible and very applicable. And so I see why your students- oh, thank you. Like, get so much out of your classes because you're very good at explaining these complex and often quite new, at least new to me, new to them concepts. So you've talked to us about niche construction, semiotics, and then evolutionary theory. And so I'm hoping you can like thread all of these together for our listeners of what this means, particularly within human evolution, or, or maybe a good example that might make that much more concrete. Or dogs. Or dogs. You can bring the dogs in. <laughs> Yeah, well, hopefully we'll have a chance to do both. I, I think there's one really good example from human evolution. And in the paper, this comes from a lot of the work that Mark Kissel and Augustine Fuentes do. So I'm kind of relaying their thinking on, on this as well. They're really interested in trying to understand the paleoanthropological record. So different kinds of art forms, different kinds of material culture outside of this overarching framework of symbolism, right? So instead of searching for when symbolism emerged and having that as kind of a revolutionary moment in hominin evolution, it's also interesting to look at those different component parts of symbols, such as the index, or in semiotics, there are other ways of thinking about how something of particular behavioral pattern or the particular shape of a hand axe, a stone tool, could be maintained in a population over time without necessarily there being a symbolic meaning attached to it. And so there are ways of conceptualizing the repetition of a kind of form over time that is conventionalized, but isn't necessarily symbolic. And so Mark and Augustine argued that that's just as interesting, and it maybe doesn't create this kind of search for an aha moment, but it's almost more interesting in the sense that we're looking at different processes that I think a lot of people can recognize in their own lives. Humans don't only communicate symbolically. We do often, but there are also a lot of indexical modes of communication that we experience in our day-to-day -day life. And so thinking about how indexicality may be at play with the creation or maintenance of stone tools may help folks kind of think about what it would be like to experience constructing those stone tools or what hominin experience may have been like in relation to material culture. Could you give an example, again, for, for folks at home not familiar with this, of like what indexing in somebody's everyday life might be? One example that, that may drive home, if I can use, it's a mix of what we would call iconic and indexical signs. And so an icon is a sign that's at a level just below an index, and it conveys meaning by resembling that which it refers to. Mm. And so if you can imagine, there's a sign with an icon of a tow truck on it, mm -hmm. right? So you would recognize that it's a tow truck, and it's stuck in the grass on a curb. So its location, the location of that sign 
is itself an index suggesting that if you park there, a tow truck is going to come and take your car away. That's using an indexical relationship to the surrounding area to convey the meaning, right? There's no symbolism exchanged at all. It's an icon and an index. That really helped clear things up for me. I'm still thinking about what we think, how we think of art and how we think of symbols in human evolution. Just to refresh our listeners' memories or to inform them if they don't know, and this is something that I'm sort of sketchy on, we have on the one hand a sort of antiquated model of a human explosion around the Upper Paleolithic 40,000 years ago where all this stuff suddenly appeared. And we have on the other hand the great McGreardy and Engel article about human evolution in the arts being a slow progression over a long period of time. We have finds of like artistic depictions or jewelry from the Blombos cave areas in South Africa from 800,000 years ago or something like that. So yeah. We have these two different models. And what I'm I'm guessing from talking to Mark Kissel, <laughs> from talking to Augustine, and now from talking to you, is that you guys fall on the slower accretion of symbolic indexical icon type of interaction and exchange. Can you give us a sense of what this looks like in hominin evolution? What are you thinking of? So it it would look like more so different ways of accumulating consistent patterns of indexical meaning from which you could have a baseline of not necessarily even what you would call higher order indexicality, but just more kinds of indexical meanings that get conventionalized outside of symbolic meaning. They get conventionalized through practice, basically. And then it would create a baseline where you could have symbolic meanings becoming attached to certain things, but it wouldn't necessarily have to happen all at once. Like maybe you would see, for instance, with personal ornamentation, you could see kinds of symbolic meaning appearing there. Maybe not necessarily in other places you have, you still have a lot of indexical and iconic meaning, but then slowly you start to accumulate more and more as in Puentes and in Kissel's words, glimmerings of symbolic meaning that would then at some point you would have, I don't know, reach a critical mass, let's say, where you tend to see more symbolic meaning than anything else. But it would be sort of the slow accumulation where symbolic meaning kind of becomes attached to an existing complex of indexical forms. That's super helpful. But the other the other example you provide, and this is one that I'm sure a lot of people can relate to, is the dogs and dog domestication. Would you expound on that one for us a little bit? Yeah, oh, definitely. And this, this comes from my colleague Anne-Marie Thornburg's area of, of expertise. She was kind of the mind behind this part of the, the manuscript. And I really like it because it, it does something that we talked about earlier on in the, in the interview where it, it's able to connect the kind of long-term evolutionary, or in this case, co-evolutionary processes with the short-term sort of day-to-day interactive processes, all within the same semiotic framework. And with this particular paper, we were interested in just kind of assessing the state of dog cognition and looking at how humans and dogs kind of utilize the same, some of the same cognitive capacities as it relates to indexical meaning and sharing indexical forms of meaning. And so in the paper, Anne-Marie talks about uh, experiments with 
finger pointing and dogs being able to recognize a finger pointing as an index, which is similar to the kind of index I mentioned before with the sign of towing. I say, but chimps don't, which is what's so remarkable about that. Right, yeah, especially um, in certain captive settings, but, but also there are anecdotal examples of chimps in some captive settings being able to. So it's, um, it's, it's an area of, of continued interest, I guess. Yeah. And, and so it's interesting thinking about in terms of humans and dogs, how they share these ways of making meaning at a semiotic level, at an indexical level that doesn't necessarily become attached to symbolic meaning, but it doesn't need to, to be really interesting. And I think that it's, you know, it probably doesn't tell dog owners or cat owners anything that they don't already know just from their day-to-day -day experience with, with their animals. But maybe it does provide another way of thinking about how to describe that relationship, how to describe that feeling of shared experience that we have, you know, with our pets. I like that a lot. It, it's, it's enjoyable for me, too, because, you know, we, you know, I had dogs growing up. You know, didn't have one for a while as an adult, but we just got one last August. And so it's, it's great seeing the kids mm. making meaning with, with the dog. You know, it's, it's something that, that I've been thinking about uh, a lot in kind of preparation for this interview. That's really cool. And I, it, it is one of those things that everyone can relate to. And the same thing, we have cats, not dogs, but there is like this shared created meaning between us and our pets that like no other cat from any other family would, would get that shared meaning, I think, in, in some senses and how we've kind of produced this together. I was just thinking about this last night. I let my, uh, I let the, the blind boy out to go pee. I have a blind chihuahua. Oh. And I and I said to my husky Gallifrey, I'm like, you want to go out too? Because he stood up and looked at me. And I was like, you want to go out too? Come on. And he looked the other direction. And I was like, I take that to mean no. <laughs> I'm going to yeah, explore you now. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Exodus needs <laughs> an index. So briefly, because we've been having this wonderful conversation, your dissertation work focused on long-tail macaques and their social relationships as well as their interactions with humans. Do you want to give us, uh, you know, the real brief overview of, of what that work was and, and kind of the big highlights of what you found? Yeah, definitely. This was something that, you know, had been in the works for several years, even back when I just visited Bali as, as a tourist before starting the PhD mm. program. I was really interested in some of these, what we might call cultural behaviors that long-tailed macaques exhibit. And so I studied two different forms of cultural behavior. One was stone handling, which is, exists in one population in Bali where they basically just pick up stones and rub them around on the ground, rub them in leaves. And it doesn't have what you may call in an evolutionary framework, function, right? It doesn't function for something specific that we can tie to feeding ecology or any aspect of survival and, and reproduction. But it's still really interesting because they spend a decent amount of time doing it. And then on the other, in the other population, it was a cultural behavior called robbing and bartering, which is a really interesting behavior where they will come and come up to an unsuspecting tourist, steal something from them, whether it's glasses, hats, sandals, um, any kind of ornament they may have on their backpack, and then hold on to the object until someone can exchange food for the return of that object that was stolen. And so it's this really kind of interesting, 
almost interspecies communication mm -hmm. going on because the macaques have very specific have a very specific notion of the protocol for an exchange and it's very mm -hmm. difficult for tourists to be able to pull off an exchange it usually mm -hmm. has to be a temple staff because you can do it the wrong way and you can basically ensure that you'll never get your item back if, if you continue kind of pressing them for it sometimes they'll get upset if it's a sandal or something and they'll just rip it to shreds or with glasses you know sometimes they'll just kind of play with it in their mouth but then other times they may destroy them completely how many of your own personal items got destroyed during your field work? <laughs> just my hat <laughs> Yeah, not bad. Was that early on? Yeah, well, it was interesting. I wish I would have been documenting it because it was kind of a, a newer hat when I started. And then by the end of field work after, it had been stolen three times. And I would just let them chew on it until they got bored with it and then pick it back up and put it on. And now it's, you know, completely frayed and there's chunks missing out of it. And so it's it would have been kind of an interesting sort of <laughs> side project, but I, I didn't have the foresight. <laughs> So take a picture of the hat to put on the cover of your book. There yeah, it is. Yeah, exactly. Or, That's a good idea. Or to include in promotions for this podcast when it comes out. I'm sure for people sure, would yeah. love Send us a picture of yourself in your hat. That'd be awesome. That'd be wonderful. <laughs> we, we are serious about this, actually. Yeah, no, totally. So, so Jeffrey, what's next for you? What are you, what are you, uh, what are you doing now? What are, you what are your plans for the future? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm working on, on new proposals to get back to the field and do some more research. Um, I'm really interested in kind of going back to my ethnoprimatology roots and doing a study that is mixed methods and combines behavioral observation of, of the macaques with interviews with, with local folks. And I want to expand, you know, a lot of the research is done at the at two main temple sites that are really popular with tourists. And I'm interested in kind of branching out and visiting some of the areas that maybe see a little bit less tourist traffic and talking with some of the folks that are there and, and getting a sense of the human macaque interface in, in those areas as well. And are you on the market? Are you heading into academia? Are you going into the private sector? What are your, what's your, what are your life goals? You have a family yeah, to support, no, I, it sounds like. So. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm uh, very much on the market. Um, you know, I'm not sure what that's going to look like mm. this coming this coming year, unfortunately. But yeah, my, my goal is to continue in academia. You know, I really I really enjoy the research and teaching and you know, the people. And so it's definitely my my career goal is to to stay. You know, hopefully find a tenure track that <laughs> elusive tenure track job. This piece, uh, at least is theoretically rich. I really, really enjoyed it. And the implications are really cool. But I'd also like to say your enthusiasm for your work, it, it comes through. Uh, your, your grasp of it theoretically, as well as real life, real world examples, it's, it's very clear that you enjoy this and you know it extremely well. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I mean, no need to thank. It's you. It, <laughs> it, it comes across. We always like to close out our podcast with a similar question, and it's kind of learning a little bit about you personally. And I know now is a particularly tough time because you're having to work from home and care for kids at home. And so free time basically doesn't exist. But when there was free time or when there will be free time, what sorts of things do you enjoy doing? We really enjoy getting outdoors. You know, we actually are kind of lucky in this area. We have a, a couple really nice state parks and, you know, when we're able to be outside, we take just about any opportunity to, to go hike around for a while. 
Um, that's probably our biggest hobby, really. That's what we spend most of the time doing whenever it's the weekend and there's nothing to do. We usually head out and just hang out outdoors. Now we have a dog, so it makes it even more fun than before. And other than that, when we're, when we're inside, you know, our favorite TV shows are my eight-year-old playing Minecraft and uh, <laughs> like music videos of the Wiggles on YouTube. <laughs> so, so basically just keeping the kids entertained, um, you know, having fun. We, we still, you know, we have room to, to run in the house. And so it's great because, you know, the 21-month-old is learning to talk and she has you know, favorite games and one of them is Puppy Run. And so she'll say, Puppy Run. And then we'll all kind of like run back and forth. And so, you know, just nice. doing whatever we can in quarantine. How do folks find out more about you, Jeffrey? You know, I at this point, I don't have a personal website. I really should get on that. I need to, to develop one. But um, Maybe you would rather people did not find out about you. Right. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> staying incognito. You know, I I have um, you know I'm listed on Notre Dame's anthropology department. You know, faculty lists, and I've got my full CV there uh, as well as my contact info. So you know, I'm always open if folks want to reach out and talk about any of these issues or ideas or anything else. Um, You're on Twitter you, as well, right? I was gonna say, can you be added anywhere? Yeah. Oh, I am. I am on Twitter. The handle's primatologeist. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of fun. E I S T. Past two days. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, I'm I'm a bit of a I'm a bit of like a a liker and a lurker. You know, I kind of just like and retweet a lot of other people's stuff. So you, I I don't have a lot of original content that I put out. But but um, if someone tweets at you, you will yep. respond. The yep. world does not need any more content. So yeah. it's all good. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Jeff, this has been an absolute delight. Thank you so so much for taking some time out of what I know is a jammed and hectic day for you, especially right now. Um, well, thanks to you both for having me on. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. You've been listening to The Sausage of Science with Chris and Kara. This podcast is sponsored by the American Journal of Human Biology and the Human Biology Association. Thank you again for listening. Be sure to like us, rate us, share us, and let us know what episode you'd like to hear next.